0: Hi again, it's Alpha Bunga, Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Today we're discussing a time when there was no next, an eternal present called capitalist realism. A book by that title came out 10 years ago. In the intervening decade, much has changed. Today we're going to draw out some threads from the late Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, which had a huge impact when it came out. We'll also discuss whether it's now out of date. This is the third part of our series on neoliberal breakdown. Two episodes ago, we discussed the psychological effects of the dislocations of the past decade, what we called neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. That syndrome is a response to the return of big events. The 2008 economic crisis, 2011, and Occupy, which brought back the discourse of economic inequality by speaking for the 99%. The Arab Spring that brought the potential for revolution back to popular consciousness. The 2013 global protest wave, and most notably in 2016, Brexit and Trump. The second part of the series discussed liberalism in a historic context, and how liberalism is unable to realize its own values. Now in this third part, we're going to discuss that weird period between the end of the Cold War and the 2008 economic crisis of neoliberal triumphalism, combined with a mood of depressive hedonia. There's no future, so let's just live for now. Alright, so we're here to discuss Mark Fisher's capitalist realism and its contemporary relevance or otherwise. Um, I'm Alex Hochili here with Ben Fogel in Sao Paulo, George Hoare in London, and Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury. Um, I'm going to hand over to George now, who's going to give us a little bit more of an introduction into the book.
1: Yeah, so on today's episode, we're discussing Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, Is There an Alternative, which was published by Zero Books in 2009. At only 81 pages, it isn't a long book, but as Alex mentioned, in spite or perhaps because of its brevity, it's been extremely widely read amongst the left. It's also probably the fullest expression of Fisher, who sadly passed away in 2017's thought. For listeners who haven't read the book, it captures well and attempts to explain the then pervasive sense amongst the British left that radical political change was not on the horizon of mid 2000s politics. The central idea is that the notion of Tina or there is no alternative is widely accepted, not only in the political sphere, but it's also started pervading a whole range of other spheres of life work, mental health, the bureaucratization of everyday life, popular culture, and so on. Fisher explores all of these in the book. So, In perhaps a similar way to Herbert Marcuse's 1964 One-Dimensional Man, it's an occasionally downbeat read, as it looks to, um, I guess, account for some of the cultural sources of the absence of radical politics. But it's also laced with interesting ideas, cultural references, and a whole range of applications of the theory of capitalist realism to life and politics. It's also a very well-written and readable book. So in our discussion, I think we're going to try and unpack a bit more about what fish meant by capitalist realism and whether we still live in a capitalist realist moment but before we move on to that alex when did you first read the book what was what was the context did it make a, a big impression on you
0: um yeah i mean i i read it shortly after it came out i mean it was probably around 2009 i was gonna say 2008 but i don't know if it was published yet so i'm not i'm not gonna like make get some like hipster would- credit for having read the book before it came out or yeah. anything um but uh, no, for me, it was it made a massive impact just because it opened my eyes to various things, which I'm sure we'll come on to discuss. But um, I, I guess the a way of politicizing mental health um, in a way that didn't just rely on w- uh, ways of looking at it through the lens of medicalization um, points about bureaucratization that kind of late capitalism or neoliberalism actually creates more bureaucracy um, despite its pretensions to do the opposite. Um, so, yeah, and and just more generally provided more of a grounding to lace like, my own subjective sense that we lived in a world of an eternal present. Like there's no future. People are disconnected from the past. Um, there's nothing really to look forward to in the future. Things are just going to carry on in a sort of internal, eternal present. Um, so, and I think that was the, the appeal of the, the book, you know.
1: Jolly, jolly stuff. So, Ben, when when did you first come across this uh, this text?
2: Well, I read it. I think in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, I was uh, at that stage uh, on a road trip in South Africa from uh, Cape Town to Durban with my then girlfriend, and I read it on a stop which we had for a few days around New Year's. And no, it was Christmas. Christmas two thousand and fourteen. It is a Christmassy book. In uh, Nature's Valley, <laughs> which is a beachfront, a beach sort of oasis of paradise it's really nice and i read the book there and i remember thinking uh, you know i wasn't really like t- didn't know that much about what was happening in the uk at the time because it didn't really interest me i was more concerned with the drama of south africa that was like it sounds really bloody miserable out there is everyone really this depressed <laughs> <laughs> and uh at the same time i was actually like the thing that really stood out for that me from the book and i reread it again after he passed away uh, and also uh there was also the Vampire's Castle essay, which we might discuss later, mm. which was in my other introduction to Mark Fisher. Uh, was that like this guy has a really good music taste and also manages to write about some re- movies which I've seen in a really accessible manner that illustrates a point in a way that doesn't come off like Frederick Jameson, who's one of his uh, Mark Fisher's idols, who uh, you really have to reread the same paragraph about 10 times to understand what he's talking about. <laughs> But anyway, no, I really, enjoy, I remember enjoying the book and also thinking like, oh, it's so, it must be so tough living in the UK where it's so dark and grey. I'm just like here yeah, tanning <laughs> on a nice beach in a forest in South Africa. Oh, you know, these are, these are like, you know, first world problems. We have yeah. mental health problems with different notes.
1: Absolutely. So, Phil, how about you? When did you first um, read this book?
3: So I read it in the last 24 hours or so in preparation for the podcast. Um, but that said, is the reputation of the book certainly preceded it? Not only with um, Alex raving about it for like years and years and years, <laughs> which made me feel that I didn't need to read it, but also other people, also other people as well, have mentioned it to me in different contexts. I also saw Mark Fisher at a conference, um, which is interesting to see him in person because again, his reputation was um, had been slowly growing over that period, so I was curious to see him in person. And also, I've, read, you know, occasionally dipped into his um, K-Punk blog, which I thought was quite good mm-hmm. and interesting. And in fact, my first kind of most, the greatest exposure I had to Mark Fisher before this was um, the Vampire's Castle essay, which I was sympathetic to and some of I thought was brilliant, but um, I suppose bore the mark of that certain um, style of 1990s kind of cultural theory, which I think is also evident in the book. It's got that kind of... Um, I can only describe it as a paper mache feel of that kind of soft pulp cultural theory which has been reconstructed into this shape. And um, despite that, I mean, you know, it's a kind of it's a system of thinking or a style, a tradition of thinking, I suppose, which has its weaknesses, and we'll talk about that, I suppose. But it's it's to be said to his credit, he does make some of these thinkers, uh, he manages to illustrate their thought and to explain some important aspects of their thought in a way that's very impressively arresting and simple and useful. So people like Baudrillard, G-jack, um Jameson, Deleuze, uh, and that's useful, a useful, a useful intellectual service, I think, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, just to, just to round it out a little, I think I read this book when it, um, probably when it just about had, had come out and found it really re-readable and also, um, in some ways a good entry point to to leftist theory i think i gave this book to a number of people for for misguided christmas presents um and i whether they read it or not i i'm not sure but i think um yeah i think it's one of the books i i remember at the time just enjoying reading and then going back and and finding new things in because i think it it really does cover a wide range of um of topics in there and also speaks about some good some good films and some some good music not not universally good but um yeah, really enjoyable read. So um, I think that you know to move on to the argument of the book, the the big first question is well, what what is capitalist realism? So I think you know we can give a fairly um, kind of bare bones definition, and this is that I think the central idea, or you know, feel free, obviously, the three of you to to disagree, and I'm sure you you will very shortly. Um, but Fisher starts with this now iconic phrase attributed to Frederick Jameson, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I see the whole book as just the the application of this idea through um, through his distinguishing this from postmodernism into various different uh, spheres of everyday life. So I think this idea that he puts it, capitalism seamlessly occupies the horizons of the thinkable. That's what he's really looking at. How is it that this idea that there's no alternative to capitalism, socialism's failed? How how has that spread and, and what are its consequences? So, Alex, I think you had uh, you had a point here on the the distinction with with postmodernism, which is probably which F- Fisher talks about in in the book and is one of the the closest um, ideas to capitalist realism.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a way of um, I'm not adding too much here, but it's just a way of he delineates it explicitly from postmodernism, and I think he makes a good point here. And without getting too much into the, the philosophy of of what is postmodernism but that postmodernism you know if, if i think people can uh, trace its origins or its or its kind of the, the the starting moment of postmodernism to to the early 1970s when this uh, modernist um, social housing project in St. Louis was was blown up um as it blown up is in demolished <laughs> um and that was the kind of beginnings of postmodernism so Postmodernism arises at a point where it's still fighting against modernism. It's trying to um, take down or disrupt or, or fragment something that it sees as this sort of big monolithic, um, wrongly in my opinion, but wrong, it sees as this big monolithic enterprise, monological enterprise. Um, and as a consequence, it, it has a sense of what is out, you know, sort of outside it, you know, postmodernism still exists when you have the Soviet Union and, and really existing socialism. Around so you have a kind of outside to neoliberal capitalism, and I guess Mark Fisher's argument is that capitalist realism goes is one step further. It's what happens after that defeat, after the conclusive defeat, where the the period in which um, you know politics is defeated has already been forgotten. You know, so you live in this period without memory. You know, the eternal present. And I think um, I think that's what's um, is appealing about the notion of capitalist realism or was appealing about the notion of capitalist realism.
1: So I think, yeah, he he absolutely says there are three points at which postmodernism and capitalist realism can be distinguished, and I think one of them is is absolutely that relationship between postmodernism and modernism. Postmodernism obviously assumes that there is some kind of live relationship, whereas capitalist realism takes it for a fact that modernism is dead. And secondly, that sense of, of exhaustion that Fisher talks about, that kind of um, the sense that you know, with the defeat of organized labor in the '80s, there's no real um, currently existing alternative. There just feels like the left is 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 out of energy and out, out of ideas. And the third one, and I, I thought this would be interesting to throw to to all, to all of you, is that he talks about this this idea that there's been a generation of people who've grown up or, and been socialized after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So. This is people who maybe studied politics in the, in the 2000s, you know, myself in, 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 this group. Um, and the, for this, um, generation, I guess he, he talks about this idea of pre-corporation that what we're dealing with now is not the incorporation of materials that previously seemed to possess subversive potentials, but instead the preemptive formatting and shaping of desires, aspirations, and hope by capitalist culture. He talks about Kurt Cobain, this idea that basically even cultural, um, kind of critique or rebellion is already cliched and even recognizing that it's cliched is also cliched. So I'm I'm guessing, you know, um, maybe Ben, Phil, did, did this resonate with you? Um, given the, given the timing of your political socialization?
3: It was the weaker. I thought actually one of the weakest points was, um, trying to kind of, um, you know, I don't know, kirk cobain such a massive pussy and trying to kind of make trying to make something of him as uh, a failed kind of hero who tried to kind of rebel uh, impotently flailing his fists against the wall of capitalist realism that i just didn't buy at all i think he, i think he I, portrays
0: uh, him specifically precisely as a pathetic figure i mean that's the whole point mm. that it's a pathetic figure
3: no, but he gives him kind of some kind of romance and tragedy as a failed you know a failed attempt at rebellion um, and I just didn't I just never I didn't get it I didn't get that and I didn't see it and I think the I would say I suppose one thing that's interesting the idea of is really you know he mentioned somewhere that it's kind of clearly a play on the idea of actually existing socialism um, which is the moniker that the Soviet Uh, block gave to itself towards in the last kind of third of its um, existence when it was clear that it wasn't going anywhere and so I think there's just so much more potential to the idea than he gives to it Um, and I'd say you know still there is I mean it still clearly applies I mean we'll get into this more but there's no um, very evidently that there is even though I suppose the point is capitalism has been delegitimated over the last 10 years of the economic crisis uh, without still without any kind of meaningful um, authentic or powerful alternative being offered to it
2: uh well i mean I, I i think i would actually kind of agree with him about kurt cobain i mean like kurt cobain is a little bit before our time, I mean, uh, all of us in the early 90s. But at that stage, it really did represent some sort of failed out of like a failed generational aspiration of Generation X to be rebellious when they really weren't. It just I, I think that sort of stood in. But I had a very different interpretation of the book because of my own context. I read it in South Africa. I really didn't have the same formation as you guys to an extent because like I was living in a place where uh, it's overwhelmingly dominated by politics. And no everyone talks about politics... Politics is the subject of almost every interaction in some ways, but it's all coded through sort of racial interactions in South Africa. And in some ways, the closest to capitalist realism there is the sort of... And it's, again, it's something completely different. And it's uh, almost similar to Brazil, but still very different. In You have the white minority, to an extent, uh, accepting the trappings of cultural rebellion imported from... Uh, the United States or Europe as uh, some sort of way of identifying itself in alliance with subcultures there while really being separated from what's happening in uh, the majority of people's houses and communities in South Africa in terms who are mostly black. So you have the sort of cultural separation in that uh, what counted as rebellious stage uh, in many ways in South Africa was among white, uh, white communities during when I was a an adult. I think it was a little bit different during apartheid, which was more culturally conservative. Uh, it just really was rebellious at all. It was just ways of sort of claiming some sort of subcultural uh, affiliation with the West, rather than creating something which was South African. So it really was a sort of different sort of performance, which is probably requires a, this whole, is, a whole different set this of cultural... Is a cultural... So I,
3: this, it's an interesting question. So, you know, it's a good one, actually, I think to have is, I mean, surely, so, you know i'm sure like you say kind of reading i mean reading mark fisher now as i did 10 years after it was published it does it's very like you say kind of uh, the atmosphere is gray drizzly rain um concrete estates uh low clouds and it's all of that you know kind of so i can see how that comes across to anyone who's not um you know anyone reading it kind of in a different context but surely i mean uh, you know, South Africa, even being outside, you know, being kind of outside of Europe, and still with all of the turmoil and difficulties that it has on a day-to-day level, very clearly a post-political society during in the post-Cold War era. Right, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, the ANC kind of tacking towards the center, becoming effectively a one-party state over the last 30 years or so. Um, The fact that the ANC became much more centrist and has tried to kind of portray the Rainbow Nation. I mean, that's, you know, so South Africa also is very clearly post-political. So doesn't that tie into capitalist realism as well?
2: Uh, I I disagree. I, I mean, to extent, I would agree with you, there was the honeymoon phase of the Rainbow Nation, but that sort of fell to the side quite quickly. And uh, the early 2000s, for instance, were really defined by the struggles around HIV, HIV AIDS, which was definitely a political struggle and involved segments of the left, involved sort of mass politics. And then uh, you also have the fact that in South Africa, the struggles uh, just to sort of eke out a survival in a community or some access to basic services and or to just get an inflation-based increase is always gonna have a political aspect and require like a lot of confrontation but like when i read this uh in the specific period it was when like it seemed like south africa had left the sort of anc uh doldrums of what you would like if it was a post-political period so from like 2011 to i would guess about 2014 it seemed like there was a big chance for left resurgence and politics and all sorts of debates and lots of things were happening and it was definitely not a post-political society uh society and in the clo- just because of the sort of but I would agree that uh, that sort of hegemonizing of the center and that ability to think outside the ANC is uh, very much a uh, feature of the South African order and I wouldn't disagree with your analysis I would just hesitate to call it like post-political in some respects what you have is something which is I guess unrecognizable in the West is in which you have a extreme set of uh, high levels of protest you have 12,000 13,000 uh, sort of street demonstrations or protests a year, uh, probably the most per capita hours of strikes lost without it taking a political characteristic in terms of like formal organized uh, political parties or political aspirations. But I don't think I would go as far to call that post-political.
1: So I think this is an important point just to remember the context in in, in, in Britain, at least, where this 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 book was published. There was a lot of um, worrying, even maybe a r- moral panic around apathy. There was this this very acute sense, even from from the elite, that you know people are not interested in politics. Well, wh- why is this? And there are a whole range of explanations, and this is you know this is um, this is one of them that the Fisher um, puts forward in, in Capitalist Realism. But I think one of the things that we want to we want to kind of, for, particularly for listeners who haven't perhaps haven't read the book, get across. Is the sense in which this this kind of political, um, ideological d- debate or, or, or stalemate or, or exhaustion, however you might want want to to, to frame it, then has um, a whole set of impacts on on various other forms of of everyday life under under neoliberalism, as as you might put it. So Fisher draws on a whole range of illustrations in in work, mental health, as as, as Alex already mentioned, um, charity, bureaucratization of everyday life. Were there any of these um, illustrations or applications of the theory of capitalist realism that really um, any, anybody found particularly arresting on, on a reread or even out of date now?
0: Well, actually, I mean, I guess as a, as a starter, I would say that it's precisely the more determinate analysis um, that Fisher has, more kind of sociological aspects, which I think are still very relevant. Um, whereas maybe some of the mood music that he did you know the the sort of depiction of the mood uh, that I think is probably now out of date but I think we'll come on to that I mean so just on one of the specific sort of analyses um, I thought one his description of bureaucratization and his analysis of that um, which I think is like the Single largest chapter in the book, which means that it's about, you know, 10 pages or something. Um, <laughs> but he packs a hell of a lot of ideas into that short bit. And he calls it market Stalinism. Um, you know, his basic argument is that late capitalism, like Stalinism, values the symbols of achievement over actual achievement. So you've got all this... Um, and, you know, anybody who's worked works in any university Will be familiar with this But it's all across sort of workplaces All these targets and objectives and criteria Which have to be met Which take up to way too much of your time He mentions um, office space to bolster his case and With Mike Judge's mm-hmm. 1999 film Which is really brilliant And I actually rewatched that not too long ago And it's still hilarious um, uh, And you know I think he, his argument Actually there's a really funny point that he makes Is that Although, for all that we, we associate kind of top-down bureaucracy with, you know, Stalinism, um, he argues that Stalinism couldn't even fully express its bureauc- bureaucratic tendencies because it was associated with a social project like socialism, whereas late capitalism, stagnant late capitalism, because it doesn't have to have any pretense to a social project, can be as bureaucratic as it, as it can, as it wants to be.
2: Um, just in terms of something that struck me rereading it, and again, it's something we can probably return to because it's a different political mood. But in some ways, uh, I guess the sort of return of like you could call it identity politics in the last few years and the sort of explosion of a cultural culture industry around it and the way that it's been so absorbed uh, into capitalism is something that really sort of stood out, even though it's not really the specific examples in the book, because it's a different era. This is the sort of mid to late uh, 2000, 2010s. But for instance, you have uh, like Beyonce's appropriation of the Black Panther aesthetic uh, when she was performing at the Super Bowl. You have the way in which uh, people claim that someone's career success represents a sort of uh, radical legacy, the legacy of a radical struggle, and the way in which uh, sort of people used to commodify uh, what is a legacy of resistance. And that's something which really fits into capitalist realism I think still, and it's something which I definitely experienced to extent in South Africa, where people can claim connection to a sort of celebrity winning yeah. an award as something which is a represent- win for all black people in South Africa as a win of representation in a context of when uh, there is extreme, there is a lot of political battles happening, is something which I think still is true, and something which I think. The specific mood music, as Alex puts it in the book, is very different to what this is. This is more exuberant, uh, exuberant aesthetics of uh, power and rebellion, uh, which don't really have that same uh, political uh, sort of feel as this period in the two thousands. And I think you also see that in the UK where there's this uh, sort of very, uh, I mean, it's always been part of a British culture and I guess every culture because of American hegemony. But the sort of uh, embrace of American aesthetics and ways of doing and ways of speaking as the sort of authentic way of doing politics or resistance and sort of infiltrating student and pop culture in the UK over the last few years, you certainly see in in South Africa. And I think this is kind of like the contemporary sort of feel of capitalist realism in the sort of this sense, I think
1: mm. so Phil, how about you? Was there anything that that rang rang false in in reading some of these applications of Tina to the rest of uh, life under neoliberalism?
3: I suppose the i I'm not so taken with this um portrayal of uh, psychic. Psychic pathology is the only way in which to describe oppression. So occasionally, I think he gets some of these kind of issues wrong. So when he talks about um, stress as a kind of something which has been privatized, I don't think that's quite right. I mean, I think mm. uh, certainly the um, the way in which we think about kind of workplace issues in terms of um, in terms of interpersonal problems that need to be managed by HR, or in terms of uh, stress, rather than in terms of Uh, particular kind of institutional problems or oppressive practices that could be um, addressed by some form of collective action or improvement in industrial relations. So, you know, I mean, I think that is a genuine thing. But I don't, you know, it's not as if you could uh, change, you know, it's not about changing the way in which we think about stress. It's rather to see that stress is a misconception of the problem. So, yeah, I think there's a tendency in the book, you know, to render kind of all sorts of, To only, he only understands, it seems to me, oppression in psychic or therapeutic kind of terms. And that seems to me problematic. The points about market Stalinism were brilliant, really well made and interesting also because, um, you know, I was familiar with that line from David Graeber's work on bureaucracy. Um, and Graeber, as far as I know, doesn't really mention Mark Fisher at all. Even though Mark Fisher's, you know, the chapter in Market Stalinism seems to basically lay out all of Graeber's points in advance um, before Graeber does his stuff in bureaucracy. So I thought that was interesting and good. Well,
2: Graeber's a bit of an bit. egotist. He, doesn't like, he likes to get his uh, own ideas passed past as his own ideas uh, as someone who's been following his work for a while.
1: But yeah. the, the the utopia of rules, which is uh, where he where he talks about this, is a good read, listener. Um, we should set up a, a kind of scheme where if, if people buy books that we recommend, we we get a little cut. But we haven't <laughs> set up as as yet. Um, but yeah, so Alex, I think you you also were you mentioned off air this idea of depressive um, hedonia, the this uh, particularly amongst the youth as as they were then described, that resonated <laughs> with you. What do they know? Um, Well, they're they're, they're, they're the podcasters, right? Right, right. They're us. Yeah. We are are us.
0: Um, Yeah, no. So the depressive hedonia point he makes, uh, which I'll explain in a second, um, is one of those mood music bits, which I think is maybe not so relevant anymore. Um, But we'll come on to evaluate that claim, I guess, in a second. I mean, so depressive hedonia, right. So depression is, is normally seen as, the, an anhedonic state you know it's a lack of desire but he he makes a point that kind of especially youth teenagers uh, and so on in the 2000s in Britain were in this state of depressive hedonia which is to say that you don't you don't really have any real desires you don't really have any um, genuine ambitions or views of the world or sense of of, of a real future um, collective or personal um, and that's the depressive element the, the hedonic element is the you know, tonight's a night, let's get fucked up, we're going to have the best time ever, tonight's going to be fucking epic, this is it, this is it,
1: that kind of feeling. Um, the kind of idea that you you have a feeling that tonight's going to be a good, good night. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, fuck, man. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, that, but uh, you know, I, I know you make, keep reference that, to, keep that. you make reference to that song, but... Um, but there's a point. I think that song exemplifies more than anything just this really dumb 2000s <laughs> presentist, yeah, we're going to get fucked up, but there's no sense of, like, I mean, if you just listen to the lyrics, great there's no song. sense of what's coming next. Great of great song. Whatever. Um, there's this, like, simmering um, kind of tension underlying this podcast of people's disagreement about music, which happened off-air. Which...
2: I have a really good point about this, actually. But, um, so the drug taste has changed. So in the, especially in this period in the two thousands, and to extent early two thousand and tens, the big drug of choice was all Molly. It was an upbeat. It was MDMA. Uh, it was yeah, a don't secret- call
1: it Molly. That's that's that that's not what or, British listeners would not understand what you mean. Well, there's a
2: quote in Brazil, Michael Douglas, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, what, from, from falling down. That's MDMA, Michael Douglas.
1: Yeah, that's terrible. Well, anyway, that's what it is. Is a good anyway. hit song
2: about. it. Anyway, the point is that people like it's a hedonic drug you already have to think about things it ensures you can have a good night a lot of energy for partying but that was the mood I think the switch especially in the United States I I wouldn't be able to comment about the UK having not really lived there and uh, is that by the time I was there the 2014 2015 uh, the drug taste had gone completely away from sort of uppers to uh, actual downers so people were beginning to get very into opiates very into Xanax the whole culture was about trying to feel numb as a mm. way of responding to uh, trauma or anxiety or stress it's no longer hedonia it's kind of like the opposite you're kind of like trying to just it's like the going down and being depressed is now seen as really cool so like you know people mm. talking about like a lot of like for instance instead of where you had uh emo and as the sort of genre of the early 2000s you have like emo rap which is kind of like not very lyrical but like kind of have some vague feelings about like uh my girlfriend left me and i feel terrible but then we do a bunch of xanax and like try to feel numb as being the cool party aesthetic uh, which is a really mm. different change in the mood i mean mm-hmm. uh, but in south africa we also had like our response is like you wouldn't quite, I, I thought the depressive hedonia was really interesting do you think but South africa in which instead of having any wave to deal with where a country where almost everyone has ptsd to some of them seeing extreme violence or forms of oppression People just do it through drinking and drugging and not talking about it as a sort of different response it, But uh, in some ways it sort of the feeling of trying to pretend that everything is good through a party I think that feeling is kind of like past at least in the u.s
1: mm. So this I, I think actually brings us on to probably the most um interesting and important question that that comes out of of reading this this short book is how I mean how does this relate to, to the current moment because this this book capitalist realism is perhaps incredibly almost 10 years old there's going to be a conference marketing uh, marking the 10th anniversary and I don't know at least of of one reading group running in Are London you
3: getting you're getting commission for the conference or
1: uh not not yet I need I need a better agent um
3: I'm commissioning it back <laughs>
2: through the podcast
1: yeah but so as i was saying i know uh, of at least one reading group in in running in london dedicated to the work of mark fisher who was extremely influential not just through his writing but also through his teaching at goldsmiths and some fe colleges and actually one of the elements of this is to do with rave culture and perhaps touches on some of the mdma points that the ben just just raised so i guess the the major question when when looking back at this book or l- looking at it uh, looking at it now um is as posed in a recent New Statesman article, whether capitalist realism is dead, or as they pose it, did Brexit kill Mark Fisher's theory of capitalist realism? <laughs> so
2: it's I a really nice title. It's really catchy.
1: Yeah. So as um, Nicholas Barrett puts it in the the New Statesman, this "capitalist realism is dead" argument can run in the following way. The fervor to, to win the global race for economic growth seems to have been replaced by a populist scramble to preserve cultural identities and a sense of economic agency. Politicians on both the left and the right now feel as though they have more to gain by biting Adam Smith's invisible hand than they do by shaking it. And interestingly, and I think this is one of the things that we really want to get down in, in discussing when relating this to, to the current moment, is whether this, this um, uh, account of Brexit that, that's given in this New, um, new Statesman article is, is correct. So they say, um, or Nicholas Barrett rather says, yet another, uh, Brexit is yet another reverber- reverberation of a chronic cultural addiction to the past. Fisher would certainly have recoiled from the more jingoistic elements. And we can only wonder whether he would have seen Brexit as a decisive blow to capitalist realism or just another set of patriotic trumpets playing a song that wasn't particularly enthralling the first time. So the major question I have to the three of you is, um, so 1989 to 2008, question mark, was the era of capitalist realism. What's the period we live in now?
2: Um, Can I just jump in? I don't have a direct answer, but I think uh, one of the features, I think particularly in this period uh, of capitalist realism, the Britain was a lack of an institutional expression for any left-wing politics. People were reduced to sort of debating and reading groups and sort of sheltered enclaves and universities or bars, sort of real feeling of sort of like a subculture that was losing. Uh, whatever euphoria there had been or popularity there had been from the anti-war movement had now died down and people like the Labour Party is here as a, as Blairism to stay and uh, what counts as radical left politics is uh, TM, is like the Socialist Workers Party, which we don't really want to be part of because it's kind of like a depressing uh, subcultural experience in itself. Or we kind of reduce to like having cultural Commentary in the sidelines. But I think first, uh, with the experience of, I guess, Occupy, the student movements, and to an extent, the UK uncut and the things that came out of it. And then later, with the changes in the Labour Party and the rise of Corbynism, it's now kind of easy to see where you would, if you want to get politically involved, where you could be, uh, at least in the UK and to a lesser extent in the US with the rise of the Democratic Socialists of America. But I really feel at this point, I mean, in the capitalist realism area, Part of what he's talking about is like you just don't know what to do in terms of to make a difference because you don't have any, mm-hmm. and you don't have any group identity in terms of
0: working together. You have a bunch of individuals talking and, to each other, and that's them. and that's just the case for people who are already politicized in yeah, some yeah. way. Most people aren't, and the question doesn't even come up. Uh, now you have a lot of people maybe who are questioning kind of politics or maybe feeling that something should be done, but maybe not yet having the avenues or the answers or even maybe the right questions for it, but feel like something has to happen, that things are moving. And I think that's the definitive yeah. difference from, you know, the, the, the current period um, compared to, you know, 2008. Um, like we've talked about in, in the previous podcast about a whole series of events, kind of the return of big events, uh, which have led us to a point now where it feels like there's a certain opening. We don't so, know what that is.
3: I would just give it a slight twist, I suppose to say. I mean I think it's you know, I'm not sure that they that most people would feel that there's movement um, in Britain at least. I think the feeling would be more that there is that there are issues that need resolution and that there is nobody in a position to meaningfully resolve them. Uh, so kind of stasis, blockage, which I think, you know, for a lot of people also will be mystifying. The idea that we're still kind of struggling with the most basic issues surrounding Brexit would be um, frustrating and strange to many people, regardless of how they voted. And as regards to Mark Fisher, you know, I mean, the thing about, I suppose, the thing about the New Statesman article is that it exactly, Nicholas Barnett's piece exactly uh, expresses what we talked about before, which is the nostalgia, the kind of the immediate nostalgia for the immediate past rather than nostalgia for the 1950s. So can we then um,
2: say knobs or neoliberal breakdown syndrome yeah. is nostalgia for capitalist realism?
3: Exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's So basically it. he's expressing, he's, expre- he's exactly expressing that. So I mean, I don't, you know, we can't second guess how Mark Fisher would have approached Brexit, but certainly we can see that this guy has a chronic case of knobs.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think just, just what just just to focus this this down a, a little bit more. Then, um, are we still in a capitalist realist moment? Is politics back, baby, or have we entered the age of what the no, social theorist Matthew definitely... Thompson calls capitalist surreli- su- surrealism? What's it's capitalist surrealism? De- capitalist right. surrealism is is this this idea that I think we've touched on um, previously that the that reality satire and hyper reality. Are uh, increasingly indistinguishable. Mm. So we've reached, we've, we've, we've maybe reached reached this stage. I, I, I thought actually the way that the, that Phil, you in particular might answer this question is basically that this, um, this age of this book is 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 past. That we actually have now, um, in British politics at least, and importantly without the left, seen a rejection of the idea that there is no alternative, particularly in 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 the in Brexit. And the the issue is now whether the, the left and particularly maybe people who've, who've the sort of people who would read and be very sympathetic to capitalist realism, whether they're able to catch up with that real movement of politics.
3: I think, I mean, there is no I, I think capitalist realism still holds because one of the things that's striking is that the sense of. Um, capacity to intervene in the idea that political power can meaningfully shape economic outcomes is something that's absent on the left. I mean, if anybody's kind of, um, you know, meaningfully on the left, at least, it's something which is very kind of uh, kept on the, you know, it's kind of kept restrained. Occasionally, it surfaces in speeches by Corbyn or McDonnell. Um, but it's not something which motivates, you know, the majority of the membership of the Labour Party, say, or the recent membership, at least, or something which um, I think kind of Labour Party voters, uh, or a lot of Labour Party voters are thinking about. You know, I mean, that might be different in, you know, among kind of traditional working class northern northern Labour Party voters. So I think in that sense, the sense of capitalist realism is um, is still intact. But it's also worth mentioning, I suppose, insofar as it has been damaged and delegitimated, that was done from within, the nationalisation of the banks, the you know the astonishing extent of government intervention in the economy in response to the crisis over the last ten years, um, the way in which um, private debt was made effectively public through the sovereign debt crisis in the EU, all of that was uh, undertaken by through capitalist an attempt to rescue capitalism rather than through left intervention.
2: Uh, I think. I mean. Um, uh, I think like, regular listeners know that like, kind of Phil and I disagree about the Corbyn question, but I think what's quite interesting is I was just like thinking as you were saying that uh, in terms of uh, Mark Fisher's own fate, in t- like he, uh maybe it's uh, worth, maybe we can uh, speak about it later, but uh, he wrote a essay famously critiquing sort of toxic cultures on the online left, in particular, neo- rising with new identity politics called the Vampire's Castle, in which he was really hounded and really cruelly attacked by uh, commentators on the internet and real life to the point they wanted to ruin his life, is that you really see that the capitalist realist left, if you think, because it's a group of individuals without political power or a shared political project that people feel united on, what they can do for modes of expression is just destroy, try destroy people's lives, take them down, try and uh, sort of, I guess, bully or shame someone as a feeling of collective power. And I think like if there's a post-capitalist realist left, realist left or like a real left project, which I have hopes is around Momentum and Corbyn, it's that it moves precisely from that sort of culture to trying to seek some sort of meaningful change or what you were saying is trying to put political power over the economy back into the question. And you can totally see with the response from many leftists to bre- to Brexit, instead of like uh, trying to think strategically about the future of the left, it's uh, basically re- it's acting in the same fashion as people acted against Mark Fisher, trying to find the heretics and shame and attack them.
1: Yeah, so I guess the, you know this is a, a very rich um, theoretical book. It's got a lot of uh, different applications. Um, there's a question whether this this time has passed or not, but I think even that question is is immensely generative. And just to maybe before I flip it round for everybody for the, the you know the, the final summing up point or, or, or that point, you've just got to get. Get off your chest. I think it's it's worth linking this back to the the two episodes that we've 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 just um, just done because this is the third in three episodes on on liberalism and neoliberalism. The history its breakdown because I think this is an essentially one of the one of the books which which paints a really interesting picture of neoliberalism or or late capitalism from the left and so it's really you know that this is why we wanted to do an episode on on this book was to engage a little bit with with this theory and think how has the left seen this period that has has dominated the political um socialization of 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 most of the listeners of this podcast i'd imagine um so alex to go to you first alphabetical order to be um to be kind of fair and uh, justice of the alphabet the infinite justice of the alphabet which I'd imagine you would defend, given that your your name starts with A. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what? Yeah. Any any final thoughts? Any any um, sum summing up? Well, I mean, we haven't. Dis-
0: yeah. I mean, we haven't discussed consumerism, and I think that's an interesting element which kind of floats throughout the book, um, which is that you know the period that that Mark Fisher describes um, that we often think of this kind of postmodern moment of um, consumerist euphoria with all the kind of bright lights and Flashing colors. Actually, they should be bright colors and flashing lights, um, rather than the other way around. But whatever, it's you know, it's postmodern. You can can let it all hang out. You can do what you want. Um, that's a permissive. That's a permissive hedonism of postmodernism. Um, and he makes an interesting point, which is that you know maybe we kind of do need limits, um, and not a, that isn't a conservative argument necessarily. But some things which um, which kind of establish some some standards, some aspirations, some principles. Um, this is actually a good moment to refer back to our episode with Angela Nagel um, a good couple of months ago now, where we talked a little bit about this, about uh, the notion of self-expression, where we talked about transgression um, and, you know, how, how that period now feels so empty. But it's partly also the fact that that period of, let's say, you know, the, the from from the end of the Cold War until 2008 – was premised on selling consumerism. It was dependent on easy credit, um, some degree of, of uh, rising GDP. And to the extent that that period had limits imposed, they were all limits of social control justified consequentially. So that is to say, you know, don't smoke, but not don't smoke because it's wrong, but don't smoke because it's bad for your health. There are negative consequences. Uh, and if there's going to be a return to politics, I think there also needs to be a return to a sense of what principles and desires should motivate us which are internally determined not just externally determined like these are bad bad consequences negative externalities that have to be guarded against um so i guess it's that point about um about you know kind of internal necessity rather than kind of external imposition and controls
1: and mm. in, in, interesting ben final to come next in the alphabet a a b p um what what are your final thoughts or or oh, I, just had a geni-
2: Sh- I just had like an a amazing uh wave of inspiration hit me about the press of hedonia in the current age which is basically if you have to look at uh, instagram which i think instagram is fast uh overriding at twitter and to extend mm. facebook as the most dominant and influential form of uh social media especially for as uh uh, Mark Fisher speaks uh, quite in depth about people who don't really like reading or don't really want to read but it's, uh, it's a visual medium is that the new we in the age of the Instagram influencer the way you commodify your lifestyle Uh, into a successful career through Instagram, through basically documenting how good you have it. So we're in an age where you basically can get, if you have enough money, spend $20,000 on like being seen eating at good restaurants and having a great life to becoming a food influencer who gets invited and paid to basically like show off how good the restaurant is and how great your lifestyle is. In some senses, it's the endless urge for that good time just (laughs) documented in uh, Instagram stories that is becoming the new sort of Depressed Hedonia's complete commodification of your lifestyle Mm. in which everything you do is basically targeted to be a public space to sell a product which is your ability to influence others through how great your lifestyle is and how great you are documenting it.
1: That is, uh, yeah, that was quite a wave of inspiration. I think that's a a good, a pretty good point. Um, Phil, final thoughts? (laughs)
3: I suppose the issue which I think Mark Fisher skirts around, um, but isn't willing to fully develop, but I think he gets he gets the central issue, which is the need, I think, to or the central problem for the left is the need to restore authority. And he kind of touches upon this occasionally. He talks about it in cultural terms where he talks about the fact about the old umreathian ideal of the BBC. Uh, which was this kind of stern paternalistic voice of the nation and appealed to and attempted to cultivate a public, and he talks about how this was the thing that kind of enchanted him, the public service oriented BBC. Uh, he mentions Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy, Pine, Harold Pinter plays Tarkovsky seasons, um, the Radiophonic Workshop. So all of the he he mentions he has this idea of a central. Some kind of central organizing principle, some kind of central authority. And he says explicitly that um, a genuinely new left, uh, this is on towards the end of the book, a genuinely new left should not be, should not uh, be, should be not, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) (laughs) The goal of a genuinely new left should be not to take over the state, but to subordinate the state to the general will. This involves naturally resuscitating the very concept of a general will. Reviving and modernizing the idea of a public space. Now, I don't know about subordinating the state to the general will, but that sense of collective purpose and agency and with it, the idea of authority. I think that's the central question for the left and the one which the left is the most has the most difficulty addressing. Um, So he touches upon some of this earlier in the book where, you know, I mean, he's talking about the kind of uh, the anti-authoritarian instincts of the 1968 left and how this is meshed in with capitalist realism. Um, And we've touched upon some of these themes previously. So I think he gets, you know, he's unwilling to kind of say succinctly, but the central point is authority, the problem of authority, how to restore authority and the fact that that's the task of the left and not of the conservative right that's the perhaps the most intriguing and most important element in the book, I think.
1: Well, I think this, this book has been particularly interesting for us to discuss because it touches on so many of the themes of the podcast, which we have previously described as being at the end of the end of history. And I think that's one of the central questions that, we, that we're going to come back to again and again, listeners, is really, are we still living in capitalist realism? Is it capitalist surrealism, as Matthew Thompson says? Or I personally feel and I'm going to abuse my my position as as a chair just a tiny little bit. Um, I feel like things have changed a little bit. Like you know, one of the reasons we we set up this podcast was because the v- extremely pervasive sense that there is no alternative that this book fully captures is not quite there to to the extent at least that we would want to to podcast about it. So all, um, but I have one one final one final final point, and this is about the Nirvana question that we we talked about earlier. I think he absolutely reads Kurt Cobain correctly. As a Pixies fan and somebody who really doesn't like Nirvana, I think he absolutely hits the nail on the head that that um, Kurt Cobain's um, kind of uh, this, this rebellion was was completely staged, and he knew it, and it was doomed, and therefore musically not very interesting. So, Alex, you can cut that if if you like, but I just wanted to get that in there no, as, that's a, as a an That's good. I like that. You're,
0: you're also a a Pixies fan,
1: so yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, right um, yeah. So, so just just to uh, just to kind of put a bow on it a little bit i think you know this this has been the third in in three episodes um on on liberalism neoliberalism capitalist realism so if you (laughs) if you've enjoyed the this episode and you haven't listened to the last two then listen to the last two okay thanks (laughs) bye
0: that's authority for you that's
3: authority